what a privilege it is to be together this morning to honor the God of heaven and to sing the songs that we've sung and pray to him who loves us and gave his son for us, to remember his son. Uh, it's a great experience to worship God, and I hope that you're enjoying that this morning and participating fully with us as we honor our wonderful God. The lesson this morning is entitled, Model for Your Last Prayer. The picture that you're seeing on the screen is a picture of a painting that was done in the 1800s. It was commissioned by uh, William Walters in 1863. Uh, he commissioned an artist by the name of Jean-Leon Jerome to paint this picture, and he wanted it of Christian Martyr's Last Prayer. That's the title of the painting. Kind of an interesting story behind the painting in that it was commissioned in 1863. It wasn't delivered until 1883. It had to wait 20 years for the delivery of this picture, for this painting. You think you're, you know, you, we get angry when our Amazon uh, orders two days late, right? Uh, but here's, they waited, waited 20 years for this painting. And uh, it's supposed to be of the Circus Maximus in, in Rome, where in fact a lot of Christians were martyred. And it pictures uh, some Christians you might see in the, in the background being crucified and some burnt on stakes. And then you see a group of Christians uh, in the right side of the picture kneeling down and praying as the lions are let loose to devour them. You wonder what they prayed, right? And that kind of brings me to what I want to talk about today, and that is, what would we pray in our last moments? And particularly if you might think of giving your life for Christ. As in a way, all of us are doing, and or are to do, when we come to the end of that experience of giving our lives for Christ, what would be the last thing that we would pray? We're going to start with that thought and come back to it toward the end of our lesson this morning. Jesus, in Matthew chapter 6, in the Sermon on the Mount, gives us what we sometimes call a model prayer. I know it's sometimes called the Lord's Prayer, the model prayer, the disciples' prayer. It's a model for prayer that Jesus gives his followers. And he says, in this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Simple prayer, simple construction, praying to honor the God of heaven first of all, to come into his presence, praying uh, that his will will be done and honoring his will on this earth, and then asking for things that we need, particularly our physical needs and our spiritual needs, primarily forgiveness. But notice the prayer is, forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Do not lead us into temptation. Deliver us from evil. We need help in the spiritual realm. Jesus then explains at the end of this, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Verse 15 shows the importance of forgiving others so that we may be forgiven and ultimately accepted by the Lord. 
What I want you to notice about this model prayer and the instruction that Jesus gives uh, behind it is that when I pray for the forgiveness of others, there is a sense in which I'm praying for my own forgiveness. Because if I can't forgive others and if I don't want others to be forgiven, God will not forgive me. So it's a bit of a prerequisite, isn't it? That if I expect God to forgive me, I need to be interested in the forgiveness of others. It's part of what Jesus is saying. We label this as the model prayer, and I think that's a good term for it. It has the basic elements that God wants us to use as we approach Him in prayer. But there are in the Scriptures some 650 prayers recorded for us. The vast majority of those are recorded uh, on the lips of faithful men and women uh, throughout Bible times. And in, in a way, uh, you might say that every one of those prayers might also serve as a model for us to learn something about prayer. And as we go through this year, we already have looked at a couple of those prayers, and we'll look at some more as we go go through the year. To we, We're focusing on, you know, having God's house be a house of prayer. What I want to do then in the next few minutes is to notice with you some prayers that are found in the Psalms, which also are instructive for us along the same lines as the prayer that Jesus taught disciples to pray in Matthew chapter 6. Some of the same elements, we'll notice, are in these prayers as are in these prayers in the Psalms. Let me just uh, preface what we're going to do uh, here in looking at these prayers in the Psalms or descriptions of these prayers. Let me preface what we're going to do by a couple of observations about the Psalms. The Psalms are a part of the Old Testament Jewish law. Somebody might say, oh, whoa, preacher, they're not really a part of the law, they're just poetry. No, Jesus said in John chapter 10 and verse 34, he quotes from the Psalms and he says, it is written in your law. And then he quotes a psalm. So the Psalms did comprise uh, part of the law of the Jews. That is a law that Christians are not under. We don't live under the law of the Jews, under the old covenant. We live under the new covenant of Jesus Christ. But the things that were written before time were written for our learning. And in fact, the New Testament commands us in Ephesians 5.19, Colossians 3.16, to sing psalms. And we typically take that to mean inspired psalms of the Old Testament, perhaps. And a lot of the hymns in our hymn book, a lot of the songs that we sing are in fact based on, some of them taken directly out of the book of Psalms. We, we literally sing uh, songs out of the book of Psalms. Now I say all that to say this, if, if those words from the Psalms can find their way into the lyrics of the songs that we sing today. I think it's more than appropriate that the prayers that are recorded in the Psalms might also find their way into the prayers that we pray today. That just makes sense, doesn't it? And so that's the basis of what I'm saying to you this morning about what we can gain from a look at a few of these psalms. The psalmist wants to be heard by God. 
the, the, the disciples on another occasion asked Jesus, you might remember, to teach us to pray. We want to be heard by God. We want our, our prayers to be effective with God. We want them to mean something to Him so that He might respect them and answer them. And so we see in the, the examples of prayers in the Psalms that the psalm, psalmist cries out to be heard by God. Let's notice some of these instances. In Psalm 17 and verse 1, which is a prayer of David, it starts, Hear a just cause, O Lord. Attend to my cry. Give ear to my prayer, which is not from deceitful lips. Let my vindication come from your presence. Let your eyes look on things that are upright. And so David is begging God to listen to his prayer. He says in verse 6 of Psalm 17, I have called upon you, for you will hear me, O God. Incline your ear to me and hear my speech. The beautiful picture that's painted there is uh, one that I can relate more and more to as I get older. Let me just say, um, some of you don't speak as loudly as you think you do. Okay? And when we're having a conversation, say, services and everybody is talking, um, I might be standing right next to you and still not quite be able to hear all that you're saying. I'm not saying I'm getting old and my hearing's going bad. That's a whole other subject. But I'm saying you're not talking loud enough. Okay? And in, in these interchanges that we have, you will ha have noticed probably of late especially that sometimes I am turning my ear to you, my good ear, so that I can hear what you're saying. I get this picture in this Psalm of David. God, please hear my prayer. Incline your ear to me. You see that? God as stooping down, and turning his ear to hear us. We need and want to be heard by God at every moment. But particularly in hard moments. And particularly when we have big troubles. That's what David is praying. Incline your ear to me, O oh my God. In Psalm 143, which is also a psalm of David, Hear my prayer, O Lord. Give ear to my supplications. In your faithfulness, answer me. Again, continuing in Psalm 143 and verse 6, I spread out my hands to you. My soul longed for you like a, a thirsty land. Answer me speedily, O Lord. My spirit fails. Do not hide your face from me, lest I be like those who go down to the pit. Cause me to hear your loving kindness in the morning, for in you I do trust. Cause me to know the way in which I should walk for I will lift up my soul to you. We're going to see in a few minutes, uh, examining the deaths of Jesus Christ and Stephen uh, in Acts chapter 7, how both of them committed their souls to God. When we pray, we are indicating to God that our souls are in His trust. We have put our lives, our very lives, our very being, in His hands. We ask him, ask him to be gentle with us and to help us and to hear us. That's what David is doing in the 143rd Psalm. In Psalm 61, again, Hear my cry, O God. Attend to my prayer. From the end of the earth I will cry to you. When my heart is overwhelmed, lead me to the rock that is higher than I. Praying for God to hear and God to help. In the Psalms then, in these 
cries out that we find, find to God in, in the Psalms. We find some cries for forgiveness, for sin, and acceptance from God being a frequent theme of prayers that are mentioned in the Psalms. So in Psalm 25, for instance, and David says, To you, O Lord, I lift my soul. That same concept of lifting his very soul, his very being to God in prayer. And then Psalm 25 and verse 16. Turn yourself to me. Have mercy on me, for I am desolate and afflicted. The troubles of my heart have enlarged. Bear me out of my distresses. Look on my affliction and my pain and forgive all my sins. Please notice that the, the, the main part of this prayer has to do with David asking for God to help him out of a really difficult time in his life. He, he describes it in, in various phrases and terms. Uh, he, he's talking about being desolate and afflicted and the troubles that are so big and the distresses that he's in. All of these things are his main concern. But then he comes to the end of all of that and he says, and forgive all my sins. He's interested in forgiveness for himself, for he knows that only a forgiven person can have pull with God, can get help from God in other areas of his life. He prays, forgive all my sins. In Psalm 86, in verse 3, Be merciful to me, O Lord, for I cry to you all day long, Rejoice the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. Third time we've seen that, right? I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in mercy to all those who call upon you. Here he is, the psalmist, calling upon God for forgiveness, being aware of the importance of getting uh, cleansing from his sin. In Psalm 130, which is a song of ascents, it would be probably one that the Israelites would sing as they would go up to worship at the temple in Jerusalem. They're ascending up to Jerusalem. Out of the depths I have cried to you, O Lord. Lord, hear my voice. Lord, let your ears be attentive to the voice of my supplications. If you, Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But there is forgiveness with you that you may be feared. Here, the psalmist recognizes that if God, you know, put a mark down every time we sinned and didn't erase those marks, we'd all be in trouble. Nobody could stand in His presence. With God, there is mercy. And He has this eraser, if you will, that we come to learn in the New Testament is the blood of Jesus Christ. We remembered, we remembered this morning the body and the blood of Jesus as we took the Lord's Supper. And the blood, Jesus says, the blood, the cup, is what was given for the blood for the remission of sins. Remember that? This is the new covenant in my blood which is for the remission of sins. There's God's eraser for us. The marks aren't there for they're washed in the blood of the Lamb. And then in Psalm 51, a psalm, apparently when David realizes the awful sin that he's committed with Bathsheba, Nathan points that out to him, prays in Psalm 51 and verse 1, Have mercy upon me, O God, according to your loving kindness, according to the multitude of your tender mercies, 
Blot out my transgressions. That's what we're talking about. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I acknowledge my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Two things about this passage. Again, David is pleading for the forgiveness, in this case, of an especially heinous sin, actually multiple sins, murder, adultery, lying, several other things. He's praying for the blotting out of those transgressions. But also, he's he's praying on the basis of God's mercy and his own acknowledgement of his sins. And I'll just say to you that it is God is not in the habit of forgiving people of sins that people won't acknowledge and acknowledge freely. And so we'll see this requirement in both the Old Testament and the New Testament that if one expects to be God to forgive him of his sins, he needs to acknowledge the sin. How can you even ask for forgiveness? We, we try that sometimes. We try to slip this in on God. And if we have committed any sins, God, <laughs> forgive our sins. If we have committed any sins, are you kidding? What sin have you committed? Ask forgiveness for that. Acknowledge your sins. And you'll get forgiveness on the mercy of God. David is pleading for that. We also see in the Psalms uh, multiple times, and it's kind of interesting just a study of the Old Testament perspective. We see Psalms that recognize that, that the soul that is right for God has hope of eternity. Now I say it's kind of odd in an Old Testament study, you can study the Old Testament from you know Genesis to Malachi, and you will find precious few places that speak about life after death. It's one of the reasons that the Sadducees felt like they had a claim that there was no such thing as life after death. It's not talked about much in the Old Testament. It is talked about, but not much. But the psalmists talk about it two or three times. We'll see one here, one, one a little bit later on. But here in Psalm 73 and verse 24, the psalmist talking to God, you will guide me with your counsel and afterward receive me to glory. Guided in life by the counsel of God. And then this hope and this expectation of going home to be in a glorious fellowship with God for all eternity. What we see then in the Psalms is crying out to be heard, expecting to be heard, crying out for forgiveness, crying out to be accepted by God eternally. Now all of those elements are at least hinted at in the model prayer. Where Jesus tells us to pray for the forgiveness of sins. And that if we don't forgive others, our sins will not be forgiven us. So think about praying for forgiveness and eternal acceptance from God. Christians are to pray for forgiveness. That's what we saw to begin with in the model prayer. And we are to pray that with a view toward being accepted eternally by God because Jesus said in His explanation of the model prayer, if you do not forgive, neither will will future, right? (laughs) Will your Father in heaven forgive you. 
So you're looking at a future relationship with God that you can enjoy because you have forgiveness, because you have forgiven others. It's really simple to see the connection there. Jesus taught in that model prayer that Christians are to pray for forgiveness for themselves and others with a view to being accepted by God eternally. As one who had become a Christian, if we turn over to Acts 8, you see a man by the name of Simon who had been a sorcerer and had quite a following in Samaria. When Philip went up to Samaria to preach the gospel, Acts 8 and verse 12 tells us, When they believed Philip as he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Here's how people become Christians. They hear the gospel being preached. They hear the story of Jesus. They believe it. They're baptized for the remission of their sins. That's what happened in Samaria. That's what happened everywhere the gospel ever went. If people become Christians today, that's how they become Christians. They hear the gospel. They believe it. They're baptized for the remission of their sins. But once one becomes a Christian, still possible to sin. And that's a problem. We see that happening in this context. Simon, this sorcerer I mentioned in verse 13, himself also believed, and when he was baptized, he continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and signs that were done. A little later on, Peter and John come up to Samaria. They're able not only to do miracles, but lay hands on people and transfer those miraculous abilities. And Simon thought it would be a good idea to have that gift himself, so he tried to buy it. Acts chapter 8 and verse 21. Peter says, your money perish with you. Your heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent therefore of this your wickedness and pray God if perhaps the thought of your heart may be forgiven you. A couple of things about this. We're familiar with this text, most all of us. What I want you to notice is Simon was en route to perishing eternally. Your money perish with you. Right? He was not, if he continued in this way, with his heart being in this condition, he was not going to spend eternity with God. Your money perish with you. With you. You're going to perish. Your heart is not right with God. Pray for forgiveness. What does a Christian do? Once they recognize, uh, I've had my sins forgiven, all my past sins, but now I'm a Christian, I've sinned, what are you supposed to do? Peter tells Simon what to do. Repent and pray. So that you can be forgiven and have an opportunity to be with God forever. So then that brings us really to the point of our lesson this morning. At the end of their lives, both Jesus and Stephen prayed for the forgiveness of others and expressed trust that God would receive them eternally. In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is dying the excruciating death on a cross. And one of the things that's outstanding about both of these examples clearly just makes us stand in awe of our Savior it is the kind of misery and pain that he was in. I want to tell you what, people don't act their best when they're in pain. 
know some of you work in hospitals and healthcare settings, and you're very well aware of this. When people are in pain, they're usually not on their best behavior. They're not thinking straight. Their pain is taking over their words and their actions often. Yet Jesus and later Stephen show a tremendous amount of self-control, concern for the welfare of others more than themselves, even while experiencing this tremendous level of pain. So Christ had been beaten within an inch of His life. He had been mistreated. He had been awake for hours and hours and hours. Crucified on a cross. Luke 23 and verse 34. Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Now I want to be clear, Jesus didn't have any sins that needed forgiving. Right? And in that way, He's different from us. But He shows us a concern for the forgiveness of others. Even the ones who crucified Him. Few of us have it in our hearts in the very moments that someone else is causing us pain. Few of us have it in our hearts to seek their forgiveness. But Jesus did. Jesus did. And then, as you go on in Luke's record of the crucifixion in Luke chapter 23 and verse 46, Jesus cried out with a loud voice and He said, Father, into Your hands I commit My Spirit. And having said this, He breathed His last. Nobody knows how we're going to spend our last moments on this earth. People die in all kinds of ways. Suddenly in an accident, prolonged illness, Many people die unconscious. All sorts of different ways. And not everybody is given the grace of being lucid in their last moments. In fact, not very many people are. But here Jesus was. He was at His mind. And the last thing He did was give Himself completely over to His Father and trust Him for His eternity. When we come to the book of Acts in chapter 7, Stephen was one of the great uh, men, the seven, chosen to uh, help with the distribution of the food for the needy widows in Acts chapter 6. And we learn that he was a man who was full of the Holy Spirit. He was uh, apparently a powerful speaker. He was refuting some of the Jews uh, concerning their claims and he was teaching Christ and Him crucified. And so he was more or less arrested and taken before the Jewish leaders. And Acts chapter 7, as most all of you know, is just an inspired record of Stephen's very long defense of Christianity and of his faith. When he gets to the end of that speech, he condemns the Jews for having crucified the Christ and having rejected God all along over their past history. Of course, that didn't set well with the Jews. And the text tells us that they stopped their ears, they rushed at Him, they cast Him out of the city. And it says in Acts chapter 7, and verse 59, that they stoned Stephen, 
as he was calling on God and saying, Lord Jesus, I re- Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Then he knelt down and cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he said this, he fell asleep. It's hard not to notice the parallels between what Stephen prays and what Jesus prayed on the cross. A a true disciple of Jesus Christ is dying here. A martyr's death. We talked about the horrors of crucifixion. I've often thought about the pain of being stoned to death. It's unimaginable, really. Just rock after rock after rock. It, It hurts just to be hit by one rock, right? But just to have people pummel you with stones for hard telling how long it would take to finally kill someone by throwing rocks at them. And yet, in the midst of all of that, Stephen gives his soul over to his Lord in expectation of eternity. And the last thing he asks is, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. Stephen in his death, was concerned about the sins of others. Just as Jesus told us to be in the model prayer. There's a thread I hope you see this morning of of thought that goes through the model prayer, through the Psalms that we looked at this morning, to both of these prayers that were prayed by Stephen and by Jesus. The concept of wanting others to be forgiven. The concept of needing to be right with God myself. And of trusting Him with my eternity. Even in one's dying moments. If I had a conscious moment to pray before breathing my last, I would like to think I would pray a prayer like Jesus did or like Stephen did. Praying for the forgiveness of others. Praying that I might be forgiven. And praying that God would receive me. If that's going to be the case, And who knows? Right? Who knows how any of us will spend our last moments. But if that might be the case, if this is my constant prayer, then it might also be my last prayer. See, those elements were in the model prayer to begin with, right? Trusting our eternity to God being concerned about our forgiveness and the forgiveness of others. That's what I should be praying all the time. And if I'm praying it all the time, it just might be my last prayer too. What about you this morning? Is this a prayer that you pray because you're right with God? Because... The blood of His Son has cleansed you of your sins because you care as much about the welfare of other souls as your own. 
This is the life of a Christian. This is the prayer of a disciple. My prayer for you today is that if you're outside the body of Christ, if your sins are not forgiven, that you would do what needs to be done to receive the grace of God and accept His mercy. Believe on His Son, Jesus Christ, and turn away from your sins and confess those things that are wrong in your life. Admit that you've done those things. Turn to Jesus Christ. Confess His name and be baptized for the remission of your sins. So you may be washed in the blood of the Lamb. We'd ask you to come while we stand and while we sing.